so often our confidence is tied to our accomplishments, our position, and our resources. Some people like to show their authority and accomplishments. They like to put it on display, whether through a house or vehicles or clothing. They like to put it out out there for everyone to see. Uh, Some people with their position of prominence want to bear down on others. That is a a natural tendency. Others are less uh, external with it. Others prefer less attention. Uh, But one thing that is universal is this. When someone threatens to steal away our accomplishments, our position, or our resources, that someone who's vying for it, that someone who's trying to steal it away, becomes public enemy number one. We like for our mini-kingdom to advance, to broaden, to deepen, to strengthen. We do not like to retreat. So if someone is threatening to lessen our influence, lessen our significance, diminish our position, steal away our resources, they become a problem. The title of our meditation this morning is, You're in our way. I was sitting here, my daughter said to me, my little daughter, she said, that sounds rude. And in fact, it is very rude. And exactly what we'll read in this text will indicate the rudeness with which the God of the, of the universe, our Creator God, Jesus Christ, was treated in the face of His miraculous demonstration of who He really is. And He was dealt with in very rude ways. He was just someone that was in the way of people's agenda. The resurrection of Lazarus on the heels of Jesus' healing of the man who was born blind had created a mixture of reactions. We can see that in verses 45 and following. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. So many believed. They saw the miraculous words spoken by Jesus, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus, in his grave clothes, comes out. And they unbind him, they take it off, and there he is, alive and well, having been dead in a grave for four days. And this comes on the heels of a man who had been born blind. In 38 years, I believe it was, he had no sight. And suddenly, At the the word of Jesus, he saw. People are seeing these things take place. And this text tells us that many believed. That's wonderful, but there were other reactions as well. Verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So they reported him. Hey, there's, there's a problem over here. There are a lot of people seeing the works of Jesus and believing Him and following Him. So they're reporting Jesus. And the result of that was a gathering of the Sanhedrin, which is a gathering of 70 leaders that would serve kind of as a supreme court. 
over which the high priest would serve as the 71st member, kind of like the chair of that group. Verse 47, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. This is the question. What are we to do? They're not denying the reports that Jesus performed miracles. They in fact say, what are we to do? This man performs many signs. You know, it would have been great if those signs led to their intended end, which was belief. If the signs that Jesus was performing resulted in the Sanhedrin's life the same way it resulted in the Samaritan woman's life who went away from Jesus and said, could this be the Christ? Have I just met the Messiah? He told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What a wonderful response that is. Their response is much, much different. What are we going to do? This guy's performing all these signs. What do we do with that? We've got to squelch it. We've got to bury it. We've got to hide it. We've got to defeat it. He's in our way. These signs that Jesus was performing were authenticating who He really was and who He really is. He is God in the flesh. God come to men. The Creator becoming a created thing for the sake of standing in the place of the created sinners. Amazing. What a God we have. These signs were designed to provoke faith in Jesus. That resulted in salvation. But it provoked something else for them. The stated purpose of the Gospel of John, we've gone over it time and time again, and we're going to continue to go over it time and time again because... Every passage in the Gospel of John is leading to this one main agenda that you and I would see and believe and know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what it says in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is what the signs were calling them to. And so in verse 45 of John 11, we have many people responding to the signs in a way that was saving for them. Not just, wow, that guy's really cool. That guy's doing really amazing things. No, that is the Christ That's the promised one. That's the one who has come to save us from our sin. Not just save us from our plight in this life. The real problem that we have is to save us from ourselves and our sin. Even this accounting that we're reading through here at the end of John chapter 11 is designed to help provoke within us faith as we read it. Why was their response, what are we to do? Well, verse 48 gives us the answer why their response to Jesus' performance of sign miracles was to say, what are we to do? Verse 48 tells us, if we let him go on like this, 
everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Everyone will believe in him and not in us. To that point, it's like they have the whole nation in the palm of their hands. They come to us. They receive from us. Our judgment is the most important judgment. If they believe Him, they're no longer going to believe us. It's Him or us. It's Him or me. And of course, the way we operate is, it's always going to be me. He's going to come. Everyone's going to believe in Him and not in us. And then, as a consequence of this problem, the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. Our place of prominence and the very state that we've enjoyed. All the freedom underneath their governance that we've enjoyed. Uh, One writer writes this, The council members were greatly troubled by Jesus' popularity and with what they saw as the potential for political upheaval, that's the breach of the Pax Romana, that's the, the, the treaty of peace from Rome, and the possibility of the loss of their power base. They were fearful of losing people's support. They were fearful of losing their position of prominence. They were fearful of losing their possessions. If the Romans come, uh, we're irrelevant And all the things that we've acquired that is ours will no longer be ours. Their possessions are also kind of weighing in the balance here. Here's a question for us to kind of ponder for ourselves. What is it that we are protecting or guarding? What are we fearful of losing? I think sometimes we protect people's view of us. We want them to see us in a certain way. We want to be known as that person that's cool under pressure. Or we want to be known as someone who will have an answer to a tough problem. Hey, I can always rely on this guy. I can always go to him. We want to be known this way. I know for me, I want to be known as a, someone who's gentle in the face of opposition. I value that. I think the big question is, why? Why do I value that? Do I want to value that, or do I value that because I want people to see Christ in me, or do I want them just to think well of me? It's a legitimate question. I think the the way that I, I, I think we can kind of think of this is, whose banner am I holding up? Is it the Rob banner? Hey, look. Look at how, how much I've accomplished. Look at the kind of person I am. and Look at where I've arrived at. Look at how I can influence you. You can always come to me. You can always rely on me. No. No, there's, there's one to whom we point. He is the reliable one. Everyone else will come up short. 
everyone else. We're flying under the banner of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not about us. But what about you? What are you guarding? What are you valuing and clutching onto for dear life so that no one can pry that away from you? We can see it so easily in others, but it's much harder to identify within ourselves what it is that we're clutching to. Generally, we think we're valuing what is right and good, or that which is just. Oh yeah, there's a reason why I'm holding on to this. There's a reason why I value this, treasure this. And yet, the more we try to cling on to our own things, the more damage we start to create within ourselves and in the lives of others. Now, the religious leaders that we're talking about here in verses 47 and following feel trapped into a corner. They see the tide turning, and it's not turning in their favor. It's turning away from them and toward Jesus. And when this happens with power brokers, there's always going to be a response And you can expect that response to be in the form of a vicious attack. And that's exactly what we're going to see here. And the reason is, it is our tendency to fight for our significance. We fight for our significance. Because they were clinging to the significance of their own importance, they ignored the significance of what God was doing right in front of them. Just think about it. Think about what we've seen from John chapter 9, just to, just to say the least. 9, 10, and 11. They're all upset that Jesus healed a man who couldn't see. And they're upset about this. And to, to pile on top of it, Jesus speaks forth a very simple expression, and a man comes to life. And they're upset about this. What's the deal? Like, if you saw someone heal a person who was blind or raise someone from the dead, are you going to sit there and be like, oh, what are we going to do about this? What are we going to do with this guy? God is doing an amazing work right in front of their faces, right in their eyes, in their day, in their community, in their nation, and all they can think about is, what are we going to do with him? And the reason is, the more attention he gets, the less attention I get. I think I have a really important place, and he's now competing with me. This is why the title of the sermon is, You're in Our Way. I'm not talking about you being in our way. I'm talking about the the Pharisees and Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, these religious leaders saying, Jesus, you're in our way. We have a plan. We have a plan and we're working it. And you're messing it up. Right in their midst, Jesus was showing himself to be God come to them. And none of that mattered because they had their own agenda. But I think we should take note. We should take note and not look back these 2,000 years ago and say, what a bunch of fools you are. Though it's true. 
but as a warning to you and me that we not do the same thing where God is at work, He's doing something right in your midst, but it's not according to your agenda. It's not the way you want it done. It doesn't highlight you and your wonderful personality and your beautiful countenance. It doesn't highlight your stellar intellect. Someone else is getting the attention. God is continuing to work. And He's going to continue to work with or without me. I experienced this firsthand this last year. I, I, I went away. I don't like leaving. I, I love the, what, what's going on here. I love to be uh, part of, of what God is doing at Cornerstone. I left of none of my own <laughs> uh, desires or will. I left and God kept working. It's like, hallelujah. This is what it's about. And where I was, God was working. God's doing this work. It's a beautiful thing. It has nothing to do with me, has nothing to do with Jeff, has nothing to do with Dave, has nothing to do with Brian as far as the actual fruitfulness. Vessels, vehicles, avenues, pointers, all that's great. But the work is the work of God, not the work of men. The work of men comes crashing down eventually. The work of God stands forever. Can I get a hallelujah to that? I think that's a, a worthwhile space for us to give praise. God, what He does, lasts forever. What we do crumbles in the end. And too often, sooner than that. There's only one superstar in the Christian faith. It's God Himself. He plans, He orchestrates, and He finishes our salvation and yet, we fight to maintain our own agenda. Look at verses 49 and 50. As we read 49 and 50, I want you to think, the leader of the Sanhedrin gets up, Caiaphas, he's the high priest, he forecasts the plan, and he essentially says, not on my watch. Or, as the popular expression is, hold my coffee. Watch what I'll do. 49, it says... But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You know what he just said? You guys are really stupid. That's what he just said to these 70 leaders. You guys don't know anything. But I do. Verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. In this pompous, belittling way, Caiaphas declares there is no way that this one man is keeping us from maintaining our right of leadership. It is not going to happen. You think that if we let things go on the way things are, everyone's going to go after him and the Romans are going to come. He's gonna they're going to take away our place in our nation. But that's not happening. I has a plan. The plan is, He is coming down, and we will maintain our position. Don't you know it's better that one goes down than all go down? But listen to this. I think that I have this on the screen for you. As they were clinging on for dear life, 
their own position of power and the endurance of their nation, they were willing to cast aside the only one who could have saved them. They're not taking this from me. They're not taking my stuff. They're not taking my position. The only one that could have provided that endurance was the one they were casting aside. Just for your information, this took place, say, AD 30-ish. Call it just go for generic sake, AD 30. AD 36, Caiaphas was no longer the high priest. He hung on for six years. Oh, you want to hold on to your nation, do you? The Romans invaded and destroyed the place in A.D. 70. You hold on for 40 years. What did you really gain? For all that clinging on, they couldn't hold on tightly enough. And many of them, many of them missed the offering of eternal salvation. For six years? Miss eternity? For six years? You're going to miss eternity for 40 years of your kingdom? You're going to just say, it doesn't matter. I'm clinging on. This is what's valuable to me. This is what's important to me. My plan, my agenda, my prominence, my position, my stuff. It's really worth it. Have you ever seen one of those uh, documentaries or columns in a newspaper? Where are they now? The where are they now didn't work out so well for Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin here. Like everybody else, they met their physical demise. They died like all men. And what was all their clinging for? Pay attention, my friends. Pay attention, Rob. Our A.D. 36 and A.D. 70 are coming. What befell them in terms of trying to clutch on, cling for life to their significance and their plans, it comes to an end for all of us. You know that death has won in almost every single case. Right? You and I are not going to defy those odds. We will also die unless the Lord Jesus comes back and death is eliminated because he's overcome it. We will all meet our maker having died physically. What are we clinging to? Am I, am I going to keep on clinging on to my own significance? The time will come when our significance will be dissolved. It's interesting um, when you go to a museum and you see like someone's bust, you know, their face and the chest, you know, they have to put their name on there because if they didn't, you wouldn't know who it was. Does that say anything to you? You and I, at some point, will all be forgotten. There's a great, you know, Pixar movie, Coco. I think that's the name of it. And this guy was like, hey, someone's got to remember me. 
because if, I don't, if they don't remember me, I'm going to disappear from the afterlife. Eventually, all your family runs out. And it's like, if they're not putting a poster of you and say, hey, remember, great, 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 great uncle so-and-so, you're toast. Just a, a thought of our significance. It eventually peters out. It wanes away. And it's true for all of us. And it's going to be true, according to Daniel chapter 2, of every single nation. They will be ground together, ground apart like powder and blown away. Significance. What are we doing? What are we clinging on to? This is, here's what's really great, though. This text doesn't stop there. This kind of sounds like very morbid and discouraging. The text goes on because we look at us and we look at our situation, we look at humanity, and it can be very dark and dismal. But in every text, we're also seeing it point away from our tendency to the rescue that God supplies. And so our attention now will come to this. God's, or God, works salvation even in our sin. God works salvation even in our sin. Caiaphas had one thing in mind with Jesus' sacrifice for the nation, but God had other plans like He always does. Look again at verse 50. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus, in offering himself for us, offered to provide for us eternal significance in Him. It's not as though God just says, I'm just going to take away every vestige of your significance. He says, I'm going to take away your significance that's going to dissipate, that's going to be destroyed. I'm going to take that significance away, but I'm going to replace it with a significance that will never be taken from you. Think about it like this. In Philippians chapter 3, as you come to the end of the chapter, it says, our citizenship, where we really live, is in heaven. And from heaven, we await a Savior. And that Savior is going to transform our vile body to be made like unto His glorious body by the power whereby He subdues everything to Himself. So He's going to take uh, this, this temporal, feeble breaking down body and replace it with his glorious body by the power that he spoke the world into existence and orchestrates over all the nations at every second all, to, all the time. It's amazing. That's where our life is, in Christ. Colossians chapter 3 tells us the same thing at the beginning of the chapter, just with in a different expression, that our life is hidden with Christ in God. Well, okay, so our life is hidden. Why? Because Christ, in verse 4 of that text, is our life. And He's coming back for us. That's where our significance lies. He is our significance. Everything we are and everything we have that will not be taken from us, that will not be petered out, rust, moth, 
stolen, all of that which is significant is found in Him. And He's given it to us. And it can't be taken away. You can read 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. It's a beautiful thing. It, it doesn't, um, it's not corruptible. It doesn't fade. It's reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God. It's amazing. Our God is so good. The plan of Caiaphas, while diabolical, was exactly the plan of God and of the Lord Jesus, except with one exception. They thought they were going to take Jesus' life. They thought they were going to hunt him down. They were going to arrest him. And they were going to execute him and get him out of the way. That's what they thought. You'll even remember in the garden when the guards came to get Jesus and they said, where is this Jesus of Nazareth? Or, or are you Jesus of Nazareth? He said, I am. Remember what happened? Boom! <laughs> Flopped over. They had nothing. John chapter 10, just one chapter back, Jesus already told us very clearly that no one was taking his life from him. John 10, look at verses 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus lets them know, you're not taking it from me beforehand. Now here they are just a, a, a short while later are saying, all right, we're going we're gonna to get this set up and he's going to go down for us. He's going to die for the nation so that the, the Romans don't come. We're going to maintain our place of prominence. But you know, God regularly, listen, listen carefully to this, God regularly uses the sinful intentions of mankind to accomplish his good purposes. I hope I hope that that continues to amaze you and me and that it will give us confidence even today. Even today, friends. God is using sinful intentions of people and He's still working even through those things. It's been happening for eons of time and it's going to happen until Jesus comes back. So whatever you're facing today, in your family, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, whatever it is that's coming your way, they may intend evil against you, but God intends good like He did in Joseph's life when God allowed Joseph to be taken into uh, uh, imprisoned and then forgotten in prison, and then ultimately God used Joseph to lead the people of Egypt to provide an abundance of food not only for the nation of Egypt, but also for the people of Israel that would come and their seed would continue on. God preserved the line of the Messiah through the awful events that Joseph experienced, being completely dismissed by his family, sold, betrayed in Potiphar's house, and then forgotten in prison. God used all of that to preserve the, the seed of the Messiah. And you and I, in 2023, still, benefited and benefit from what God did in Joseph's life that he probably did not enjoy very much at all. 
And so we also endure the difficulties that come with living in a broken, sinful world with broken, sinful people that God uses even that broken sinfulness to work in us. That doesn't mean we enjoy being sinned against or hurt. We don't take it lightly. And I don't take it lightly if it's happening to you or it's happening to me or one of my family members. But that doesn't discount the reality that God is still at work even in our experience of difficulty and pain and rejection. God reveals in verses back in chapter 11 in 51 and 52 that Jesus would lay down his life for the nation and for countless Gentiles. It says in uh, verse 51 that he would die for the nation in verse 52 and not for the nation only but also to gather in to one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And Jesus made a very similar statement back in John chapter 10 in verse 16. Jesus said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. And so all the diabolical plottings of Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin to attack Jesus were, was going to ultimately result in Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's an amazing and joyful experience. Now, think about this. This shepherd king in John chapter 10 that he's saying that he was going to bring all these people under one shepherd, he's the good shepherd, right? This shepherd king under which all these sheep will come willingly laid down his life for them. I've said it before, and as long as I have breath in my lungs, you're going to keep hearing me repeat this. Here's something that is, is normal. Kings hire and train soldiers to lay down their lives to keep their kingdoms thriving. Our Savior King laid down His life to welcome you into His kingdom. It is so otherworldly. Think about now your little mini kingdom. Moms and dads, husbands and wives, employers, people that have people working under them. What does that kind of leadership that you're seeing from your Savior King do in how you're dealing with those that are in your little sphere of influence? Should that matter? Should it matter the way that your Savior King laid His life down to welcome you into His kingdom so that you would thrive in His kingdom rather than you laying down your life so His kingdom would thrive? How does that impact the way you deal in your sphere of influence? We're in awe of Jesus doing this for us. And you and I, we want to be channels of that same majestic humility in our own lives. Jesus became nothing to welcome you into His everything.
And so we come to verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The warrant is out. We're going to get him. Their plan to kill Jesus was the very means by which God was making the greatest sacrifice and provision of eternity. He had spoken of it all through the Old Testament record. As early as Genesis chapter 3, we see that there was a promise in Genesis 3.15, a promise that the seed of the woman would be crushed. More explicitly, in Isaiah 53, we see a furtherance of this. It says in verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. You see that? He was crushed for our iniquities. Look at the uh, verse 10. It will be on the screen. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He's essentially letting us know that this promised suffering servant who would come would endure that crushing that was promised and he was crushed and bruised for me. Bruised for my sin. In my place condemned he stood. Why? So that I would never be condemned. He took my condemnation for me. This is our Savior. He's amazing. It was not just for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Though many Jews have trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior, and many still will. But it was also for all those who believe in His name. To everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We know as early as Genesis chapter 12 that God planned to bless the whole world through the seed of Abraham. Through Jesus, God was going to bless the whole world. Caiaphas's prophetic statement, which was intended to assure the Sanhedrin of their secure political future, foretold God's plan to provide a secure spiritual future for many. The chapter concludes by talking about some elements of narrative. In verse 54, we see Jesus' travel plans are changed a bit. It says, or travel patterns, excuse me. Jesus, therefore, verse 54, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So he changed his travel patterns. In verses 55 and 56, there's discussion about people coming to the Passover and purifying themselves, and and a discussion arose. And the discussion was this. Is he going to come to the feast? People are coming from all over Israel. All these villages and counties. And they're coming up to Jerusalem. They're purifying themselves in preparation for the Passover. And the, the word around town was this. Do you think Jesus will come? Do you think he's going to be here? I haven't seen him. Have you seen him? I'm looking for him. I I came up expecting to see him. Do you think he's going to come? 
I keep hearing about him. One time he passed through my village. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. Is he going to be there? Can you feel? Can you feel the intrigue? In verse 45, many believed. In verse 46, people are reporting. Here in this text, we see people saying, ah, I want to get a glimpse. Is he going to be there? What's going to happen? In verse 57, we have the warrant out for Jesus. The chief priests and Pharisees have given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This section really exposes our tendency to fight for our own significance and to guard what we value. Yet in the face of human attempts to maintain their significance, God is at work showing us where we really find a significance that will last. This section is calling out for you and I, for us, to believe that Jesus is the Savior and that He is our significance. Three differing responses. Many believed, some reported, others are intrigued. How about you? Which of these are you? In contrast to trusting in our own accomplishments, purposes, position, and resources, our Savior offered a confidence that rests on His accomplishments, joining us to His position, accompanied by His unending resources. So He replaces all of those things that will fade away with that which will last forever. For whom? For whom? Those that will see. Those that will hear. Those that will believe in him. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. All of those believing ones, these who have been given the right to be called the children of God, we all come under this one shepherd and we find in him our true significance and confidence, which results this way. I'm going to read to you from Revelation 5. If you want to turn there, feel free. Revelation chapter 5. All of us who believe are envisioned in this scene in Revelation chapter 5. Because Jesus, when He came, He came and He was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but for all those children of God who had been scattered abroad that were going to come under this one shepherd. And He envisions us here in this scene in Revelation chapter 5. Look at what our significance, where we find our significance here. Revelation 5, beginning in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, 
Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And I will just add, and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and did what? What else is there to do but worship? See, we can either say, Jesus, you're in our way. Or we can recognize, Jesus, you're the way, the truth, and the life. Everything I need is found there. And you've already done it. May I submit to you, friends? May I submit to you, Rob? Let's find our eternal significance in him. It'll never diminish. It'll never fade. He's done it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. As we sing in these next couple of moments, we pray that your spirit would fill us with all joy and peace and hope in believing and seeing Jesus as our true lasting significance. Help us in Jesus' name.